Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig with details. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? So I know you're always looking for a different get-rich scheme. It feels like every week you've got a new one in the works. <laughs> Am I? I'm not sure that starting a trivia magazine or getting into podcasting was the right thing. Well, I have finally found this This one is definitely going to work. And, and the idea here is to invest in Lego sets. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's true. Actually, I found this analysis from a couple years back, and it shows that over the previous decade and a half, Lego sets that are still in pristine condition have seen a 12% increase in value each year over that time. Huh. Now, that growth beats gold, which I know you like to look into a good <laughs> bit as well. That's grown 9.6% annually. And then the S&P 500, which grew by a little more than 4% each year over that time. And actually, if you look on eBay, some of the returns on this are even more extreme. There's the old Cafe Corner set, which was released in 2007. It's worth more than $3,000 on uh-huh. some of these eBay bids. And then there's also that crazy Ultimate Collector's Millennium Falcon set from that same year. It's now worth more than $4,000. So think about that, Mango. Think about how much money you could be making from this. I know. I really should have been a hoarder in the early 2000s. But uh, <laughs> is this better than like holding on to baseball cards or like Beanie Babies? Mango, this is not a fad. Lego is a way of life, you know? I, I don't I actually I don't know why I just said that or what that even means, but we should probably do a little bit more research on this, but it is really interesting to see. And you know, seeing those stats on Lego and the fact that millions of Lego pieces are molded every single hour, it made us wonder how Lego got to be the massive brand that it is today. You know, what are the most amazing things to be built from Lego bricks? How have they been used to solve real-world problems? And of course, what is the science behind the excruciating pain brought on by stepping on one of these things? (laughs) So let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hatekater. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, 
With only a couple hundred or so pieces left on his Lego Taj Mahal, that's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. Now, building this thing has been no small feat for Tristan because the Taj is actually one of the biggest Lego sets ever produced. It's just shy of 6,000 pieces. So, you know, while that finished model does look pretty stunning, he's definitely had his work cut out for him. Yeah, I mean, he, he told me the build takes about 25 hours total, and he's pretty much spent all week on it. The crazy thing, though, is that the Taj Mahal isn't even the biggest Lego set on the market. There's a bigger one that just came out based on the Hogwarts castle from Harry Potter. That only has about 40 more pieces. But then there's also this uh, Millennium Falcon one that came out last year. And it's actually the set with the highest piece count to date. It's got a whopping 7,541 pieces. And of course, if Tristan wants to make that his next challenge, he'll have to shell out $800 to make it happen. Good grief. Wow. Well, I'm guessing that's a little out of his Lego budget, or uh -huh. at least I hope it's a little out of his Lego <laughs> I hope budget. So too. <laughs> but, you know, I know Lego mania can be a pretty powerful thing when it takes hold, not to mention expensive. And you know, is it isn't by chance that Lego has held steady as the world's most valuable toy brand for the past several years now. Those little plastic pieces, you know, they give these endless opportunities for creative play and that flexibility has definitely captured the imaginations of kids and adults alike for, you know, more than half a century. That's right. In fact, this year actually marks the 60th anniversary of the Lego brick as we know it, as well as the 40th anniversary of the Lego minifigures that populate our Lego towns and pilot our Lego spaceships. So to kind of celebrate all those milestones, I think now's the perfect time to break down the little known history behind one of the world's most popular playthings. Well, definitely, because for as long-lived as these two figures are, the Lego brick and the minifigure, the company itself is actually a fair bit older. So today, we definitely want to dig into those early origins, as well as some of the different ways the brand has managed to reinvent itself throughout the years. And a little bit later, we'll also check out a few of the more creative ways that Lego fans have found to put their favorite bricks to good use. But first, Mango, I know you wanted to give a quick note on terminology, right? Yeah, and I know it's a little weird to be a stickler about terms when discussing a kid's toy, but one of our researchers was adamant about this. I'm going to tell you. I like how you said one of our researchers. <laughs> like, we don't know I who know, this is. I know, it's Gabe, of course. But, right. <laughs> you know, I want to avoid another lecture from him. So, yeah. <laughs> But it, it is kind of interesting. So the first thing to keep in mind is that the word Lego is actually an adjective, not a noun. And this is something that's even reflected in the name of the company, which isn't simply Lego, but the Lego group. And if the company had its way, no one would ever refer to one of their pieces as a Lego, but as a Lego brick. And of course, that doesn't always happen. Lots of people just use the word on its own when talking about the pieces. And that little slip up usually gets a pass from the company and its fans, so long as you don't compound the problem by adding an S to the word to make it plural. And <laughs> apparently that's beyond the pale for most people because the true plural of Lego is just Lego, never Legos. All right. Okay. Well, we will try our best. I think. I mean, there are times where I'm just thinking, you know what? I'm just going to say Legos, Legos the whole Legos, time Legos. just to see how much <laughs> we can drive them crazy. But I think we'll try to stick to those ground rules. And now that we've gotten the semantics out of the way, let's go back to a time before the Lego brick and, and actually before the company itself. Because the family business that would eventually become the Lego Group was actually established under a different name. Now, this was back in August of 1932. It's located in a rural village in Denmark, and the business was started by this master carpenter and woodworker named Ole Kirk Christensen. Now, in those early years, Ole Kirk made a living selling things like stepladders and stools, even ironing boards. 
But the business was slow. This was, you know, th- think about the timing. This was during the Great Depression that had been brought on by America's stock market crash just a few years earlier. Mm-hmm. And so few people had the money to buy these expensive or handmade furniture pieces. And so Olkirk was struggling to turn a profit with his woodwork. So I'm just going to guess here, that's when he came up with this idea for wooden building blocks. I mean, this was 1932. So so the wooden building blocks had been around for, for quite some time, <laughs> at, at least by that point. But uh-huh. the Depression did motivate Olkirk to seek out new product ideas, which is what ultimately led him into the toy business. So he thought that, you know, despite the financial strains of the era, people were willing to indulge their children with the occasional gift, uh, of course, provided the the price was low enough. But that spurred Old Kirk to whip up his own batch of brightly colored wooden cars and animals. And this was really just using the wooden scraps from his workshop. That's pretty awesome. I I love that the Great Depression basically turned him into this like real life Geppetto. Yeah, it definitely <laughs> did. And that move, it seemed like a safe bet to Old Kirk, but sales pretty much stayed flat for the first year. And in fact, Old Kirk even went bankrupt at one point and had to take a bailout loan from his siblings. But they actually insisted one of the conditions for the loan was that their brother would give up on toys and go back to making furniture. But Old Kirk was pretty stubborn and he refused, but somehow managed to get them to loan the money anyway. And he had become convinced that toys were the future of his company. All he needed was just a catchier name. And you can decide whether you think he needed a catchier name. The name of his business was the Billund Machine Joinery and Carpentry Business. (laughs) Wait, so that's what the shop was called after they switched to toy making? (laughs) It feels weird. Like, Like, why would they think that would work? I know. Well, thankfully, Old Kirk came up with something much more evocative later on. By truncating the Danish expression Ligot, which means play well, he landed on the word Lego. Huh. So I actually took Latin in school, and I'd always heard that Lego was the Latin phrase for I put together. So here's the weird thing. You're actually right about that. That is the meaning in Latin, but that was actually just a happy accident because apparently Old Kirk found out about this years later that this is what it meant in Latin. But no matter what he thought it meant, that renaming effort definitely paid off for the company. And it quickly grew from what was a six-person operation in 1934 to more than 40 employees by the early 40s. Now, much of that growth was due to the national popularity of Olkirk's adorable line of pull toys. You've definitely seen these kinds of things before. You know, you've got the hand-painted wooden duck on wheels that would open and close its beak that, you know, as you pulled the string. And pretty neat to see those things. But anyway, the Lego ducks sold for barely more than a dollar at that point. This was when they were released in 1935. But as one of those earliest and most recognizable Lego products, if you got your hands on one of these things these days, a single duck can fetch more than $2,000 at auction. It's so funny because like these are things that you see in like villages in India, these pull toys, they don't feel that special. Mm-hmm. What made them change from like wooden ducks to plastic bricks? It definitely wasn't overnight. It was a pretty gradual change and, and much of it was brought on by necessity. So in Denmark, they'd been under German occupation during the Second World War. And by the time the war finally ended in 1945, many of those materials that were traditionally used for consumer goods, you think things like steel and wood, they were tough to come by. And so that was a problem actually all over the globe, not just there in Denmark. 
Now, the result of these shortages was that many manufacturers started experimenting with a new development in plastics. Now, this was called plastic-injected molding. Mm -hmm. and this is that process where melted plastic is shot into a precise mold of whatever it is that you're trying to make. And then once it cools and solidifies, you simply pop them out and you've got your finished item. And so it was a much cheaper and faster way to make these plastic goods compared to earlier ways of doing this. Sure. And so this breakthrough is really what made plastics a viable alternative for the manufacturers at that time. So Olkirk had felt the pinch from the lack of raw materials, so he decided that the Lego company should take a chance on plastic toys. So you fast forward a little bit to 1946, and he placed an order with a UK company for what ended up being one of the first plastic injection molding machines. And the only problem was that the material shortage had led the Danish government to ban the commercial use of that machine until the following year. Fortunately, they decided to spend their time wisely, so Ole Kirk and his son Gottfried were, were still able to experiment with the machine and kind of study the various sample products that had been included with it, and were really trying to see what they could make from it. Well, one product that they stumbled into was this set of self-locking building bricks, and it was made by a British company called Kittycraft. So they had these colorful two-by-two, two-by-four bricks that had this special design features that set them apart from the traditional cube-shaped building blocks of the past, because each one was hollow on the bottom and had these four raised studs on the top. This probably all sounds pretty familiar. And uh -huh. so the design added stability to whatever structures the kids built because the studs held each brick in place. So this is obviously really interesting to me, but I'm not sure I like where it's going. I, I feel like I'm a little worried that you're going to tell me that Lego just didn't invent the Lego brick, but they just kind of stole this idea. And I, I'm not sure I can handle that sort of disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle on this one because... Once the Christiansons were finally allowed to put their machine to work, that's exactly what they did. Uh -huh. In fact, by 1949, the Lego company was producing around 200 different plastic and wooden toys. And many of the plastic ones were simply new versions of earlier designs. So things like the plastic planes or trains or, you know, different things like that. But among the repeats was this new but somewhat familiar product called automatic binding bricks. And as you feared, Mango, these were really just a copy of these bricks made by Kittycraft with a few small changes. But actually, the Lego version was was honestly a bit inferior to the original. The company, really? you know, they just weren't used to making such small parts and the technology was still pretty new to them. And uh -huh. so as a result of this, many of those hollow Lego bricks were prone to cracking or shrinking, which is... Weird to think about now because they just seem so indestructible I these know. days. But, you know, it actually, sometimes it was so bad that once the plastic had cooled, the bricks didn't even fit together. I mean, I guess there are always growing pains, but it does feel crazy that, like, if you're going to rip someone else's idea off, at least do a good job of it, right? That's always been my philosophy when I uh, <laughs> try to rip people off. But, you know, you put the shoddiness aside. I, I do want to say in old Kirk's defense that Kittycraft bricks weren't protected by a patent in Denmark, and the company reportedly said it was fine for them to use the design. And one other thing, it is worth noting that the Lego group did eventually buy the rights to the Kittycraft bricks from the inventor's descendants, and this was sometime in the early 80s, I think. Oh, that's interesting. So uh, maybe there was like a little bit of guilty conscience in there going on, yeah. but it's still nice to hear that they made it right. And I am curious, though, if those automatic binding bricks were such poor quality, like what made them such a big hit? 
Well, they definitely weren't at first, and, and this was true of the company's plastic toys in general during the early 1950s. And at that time, roughly half of all Lego sales were still from wooden toys, whereas you, know, you look at the Lego binding bricks at that time, they actually only accounted for like 5 or 6% of their sales. And so to help turn this around, the Christiansons made a few key changes. First, in 1953, they ditched that austere-sounding name and actually started calling the product Lego Merston or Lego Bricks. And so by this time, Gottfried was starting to take on a much larger role in the company. He became really interested in finding a clearer focus for the company, rather than kind of spreading those resources across so many different kinds of products. So he eventually decided that the adaptability, that wide appeal, and really the ease of production for something like Lego Bricks made it the ideal choice. But still, even then, the bricks weren't a hot seller yet, so there was obviously room for improvement. So Gottfried and his father started tinkering with the bricks' design, and in 1957, they really stumbled onto their winning idea. Mm. Now, this breakthrough was to add tubes to the otherwise hollow interior of the bricks so that the studs had something to connect to. And so these new studs and tubes that, that kind of allowed these bricks to snap together and hold tight and... And, and, of course, still be able to pull apart pretty easily when you try to pull them apart. And so the company later called this clutch power. <laughs> Sounds really strong, doesn't it? But clutch it is, power. It, yeah, it's clutch power. But, it, I mean, it is pretty amazing how they were able to pull this off. But, sadly, Olkirk didn't get to see just how much of a game changer this new design would be because he actually passed away the very next year. This was in 1958, which was also when Lego bricks, as we know them today, were first released. So I, I know we mentioned earlier that's the 60th anniversary for Lego Bricks, but it is weird to think that it's the 60th anniversary of the death of the company's founder as well. I mean, that's kind of bittersweet. Yeah, and it was definitely the end of an era for the company. And, and actually, just a couple years after this, there was a fire that broke out on the Lego warehouse, and the company lost pretty much all of their inventory of wooden toys. So. It, it really kind of rushed a decision they probably would have come to anyway, and they just decided to close the books on the wooden toys and really place all their bets on the future of these plastic toys. That's pretty wild. So I know Godfrey took over after Old Kirk's passing, and he definitely took care of his father's legacy. Like, he helped the company find a core product with that new style of bricks, and the design was such a sound one that it stayed exactly the same for 60 years now. So you can actually go out and buy a Lego set today, and the bricks would all interlock perfectly with the ones released in 1958 or any year since then. And this connected, quote, system of play, as they call it, you know, it was really revolutionary. And it's still the driving force behind, you know, the appeal of Lego products, not to mention their retail success. And it's hard to think of any other company that had been creating products, you know, 50, 60 years ago that would still be usable in any way with something that they're making now. So it's pretty remarkable. But you know, apart from being interrelated, there, there's another big appeal of Lego bricks, and that's their durability. Because it turns out that a typical 2x4 Lego brick can be put together and taken apart more than 37,000 times before they lose that clutch what? power that we talked about <laughs> before. But we know this thanks to a software developer named Philippe Canton. So a few years back, he built this stress test machine that would continuously assemble and disassemble two Lego bricks. And this happened for... 10 days straight. Then finally, after 37,112 rounds of this, 
Canton found that the brick studs and tubes had become so worn out that they no longer held together. So it is possible to wear out your Lego bricks, but unless you have a really bizarre sense of fun, (laughs) I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. So I definitely hadn't heard about that experiment before, but I did come across this other stunt test where this group of engineers tried to figure out exactly how much weight a two-by-two Lego brick can endure before it finally breaks. Which obviously sounds like a very worthy endeavor for these engineers, but uh, they basically took this hydraulic ram and used it to apply different levels of force to the brick. And in the end, a single two-by-two Lego brick was able to withstand a staggering 4,240 newtons of force, which is equal to about 950 pounds. Wow. Isn't that astounding? But the coolest part is that once the team had that figured out, they were able to work out the number of Lego bricks you could safely stack before they just collapse under their own weight. And when you do the math, it turns out that a single Lego brick should be able to support a whopping 375,000 other bricks. And if you somehow managed to stack that many bricks straight up, you'd wind up with a tower that's over two miles tall. You know, look at Tristan's face right now. It seemed like he'd been ignoring us this whole time working on his Taj Mahal. But once he hears this, I know this is going to be his next challenge. That is two miles. That's pretty wild. (laughs) But, you know, I I, I do think that now we've talked about just how much abuse Lego bricks can handle. It, It feels only fair to mention the kind of punishment they can dole out, especially when they're you know, strewn across the floor of a darkened bedroom, as we both know this experience of parents of, of, of younger children. Yeah, I mean, it definitely sounds like you've got a story there, and I want to hear it. But before we do that, let's take a quick break. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about Lego. Now, 
Mango, if playing with Lego bricks is a rite of passage for kids, then stepping on Lego bricks is probably the equivalent for parents, wouldn't you think? Yeah, definitely. I mean, forget first steps, forget first words. I feel like the real parental milestone is the first time you use the bathroom in the middle of the night and you wind up with a little plastic cube just lodged into your bare foot. <laughs> yeah, and then your kids get to hear some of those first words with your first steps on those Lego toys. I mean, it's... It's a special kind of pain, I feel like, and just so much worse than these other minor injuries like stubbing your toe or something like that. And uh-huh. actually, it turns out there's actually a scientific explanation for why stepping on Lego pieces tends to hurt so badly. Mm-hmm. Now, part of it comes down to our own biology. I mean, we have tons of nerve endings in the soles of our feet to help keep us balanced, and this makes the bottom of our feet so incredibly sensitive. But Lego pieces are especially aggravating for a couple of reasons. So the first is, you know, they obviously have these sharp corners and raised studs, which are painful enough in themselves. But the second one, and this goes back to what we were talking about before, about their strength and their ability to withstand 950 pounds of pressure. So when you step on one of these Lego pieces, you simply don't weigh enough to compress it. Hmm. So instead of the force of your step being absorbed by the piece, it actually transmits that force right back into the soles of your feet and all those delicate nerve endings that are there really feel that pain intensely. Oh, so I, I guess all that durability is kind of a double-edged sword, right? Yeah, and it's a pretty well-known one at that because I, I had not known about this previously, but in 2015, the company even released their own branded slippers with extra padding to help deal with the problem, <laughs> which seems a little bit absurd. I'm not sure why you could just get some other slippers and... You know, only about 1,500 pairs were produced, so I guess we'll have to have to make our own. Yeah, but now that we've given the brick it's due, I, I do want to shift gears and talk about the other LEGO milestone for this year, which is the birth of the LEGO minifigure. And we are so used to seeing these little yellow guys at the company's marketing and in just about all the sets they produce that it's tough to imagine the brand without them. But in reality, the minifigures we know didn't exist until 1978. So for 20 years, I mean, the company had been building these, you know, houses and cars and all of this stuff, but no characters to put inside them. It feels like a pretty long-running oversight, don't you think? Yeah, so the the company had tried making Lego people once before in the early 70s, and this is when they rolled out a line of homemaker sets, and it let the kids build rooms and furnishings for their own Lego houses, but... These proto minifigures, they were designed to be built with existing Lego pieces, which meant they lacked like proper arms, feet. And as a result, they just looked like pretty abstract, I guess. And they certainly weren't that fun to play with. Okay, well, that makes sense. So, so how did the change come about? It was actually the idea of this designer who pretty much took on the task single-handedly. He went through more than, I, I think, 50 different versions until he finally landed on what he considered to be the perfect blend of blocky aesthetics and human-like interactions. So, for example, his figures had movable arms and legs, as well as the hands to grip these other Lego accessories. But they also had holes in their feet so they could be attached to a brick. And the first of these newly designed minifigures to hit the market was a police officer. It was released in 1978. But this is the strange part. Despite the redesign and the fact that the figure came packaged with a buildable police car, there was still no way to actually put the figure inside the car. (laughs) But thankfully, over the next few years, the company refined the concept. They eventually got the hang of how to scale the figures and vehicles so that they all work together. It seems like a smart move. Actually, this is also kind of random, but I read that since 1978, more than 4 billion Lego minifigures have been produced. It's pretty wild. So if you if you wrangled all those minifigures together, gave them their own nation, they would actually constitute the largest population in the whole world, Mango. <laughs> 
mean, if they were humans. <laughs> let's let's not get hung up on technicalities. It's a big <laughs> number. But all right, you know, the, the one thing I always wondered about these Lego minifigures is why they're yellow. I mean, has this always been the rule? And is there a reason why they went with yellow in the first place? Yellow was the default for Lego people even before the minifigure design was finalized. And according to the company, there's a good reason for that. So the designers wanted the figures to appeal to as many children as possible. And they didn't want the kids' imaginations to be limited by perceptions of the figure's race. So early on, the team decided that yellow was the most racially neutral color to use for a skin tone. And that's what they'd stuck with ever since, which is, you know, until the company started getting into the licensing game. This was in the early 2000s. And once characters from franchises like Star Wars or Harry Potter started getting the minifigure treatment, the company kind of relaxed their stance and they started using the real world skin tones to better match the source material. Yeah, and I feel like I remember this being somewhat controversial when they decided Mm -hmm. to make this shift, but... I mean, unless they're based on real people, all the minifigures are still yellow. So I'm not I'm not sure what the big deal is. Well, I, I think a lot of the people just objected to seeing Lego partnering with these outside brands. Like, they were purists. They worried that the company was losing sight of what made it so special in the first place. Yeah. And if you think about it, like, the company's specialty had always been these blank canvas products that kids could use to dream up whatever stories they wanted. But once these floodgates were open to things like Star Wars or SpongeBob or Batman, like... Suddenly, Lego sets came with these stories and characters that were already pre-baked into the properties. Okay. Well, so it was kind of seen as a loss of innocence type thing for the company, I guess. But now that it's been a decade or so since that licensing began, what would you say is the consensus now? Like, is the move still seen as the company selling its soul or has it turned out to be not that big of a deal or what? Yeah, it depends. On On the one hand, the kind of license sets that we've been talking about have made Lego really successful. In 2017, the company reported the highest earnings in its 86-year history, and it's currently valued at nearly $8 billion. Wow. But then you've got other people who say the success has kind of cost the company a lot of its credibility. Lego products are often held up as these wonderful educational tools and, and these great examples of STEM or STEAM toys. And there's no doubt that they are in a lot of cases. But as licensed properties become more and more of the company's output, you have to wonder how much longer that public goodwill is going to last. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like it's a pretty tricky balancing act at this stage in the company's history. And it'll be interesting to see how all of this evolves. But there is no denying that over the years, Lego toys have proven a fantastic way for educators and their students to get involved in everything from math to engineering and you know, I know we were talking about this before the show here, but there's a specialty line called Lego Mindstorms. And it's basically a way to combine Lego bricks with sensors and motors and microprocessors mm-hmm. and all sorts of cool stuff like that. So that, you know, kids can build everything from like a simple conveyor belt to, you know, I was seeing photos of a walking robot triceratops. And, and they can do this even if they don't know anything about computer programming. Yeah, Mindstorms are pretty awesome. It, it was developed in partnership with the MIT Media Lab, and this was in the late 80s. It's really taken off since launching in the early 90s. Like, there's this whole online community of makers now, and and schools even have these tournaments where students compete to design and build and program their own Lego robots. And it really isn't niche either. I, I, I read this article in Smithsonian that said uh, half of all middle schools in America and about a quarter of elementary schools and high schools have worked with Mindstorms and kind of put them into their curricula in one way or another. And I feel like that's a pretty amazing achievement for a toy line. Oh, definitely. And those kinds of school programs are are really just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the impact Lego products have had on the world of academics. And, 
You know, you even see plenty of adults in steam fields that have found some really interesting ways to use Lego bricks. And I, I want to make sure that we highlight at least a few of those before we call it a day. What do you say? Well, I'm definitely for that, but let's take another break first. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Welcome back to Part-Time Genius, where we're talking Lego. So, Will, I know you want to showcase some of the more inspired ways to use Lego products, and I think I have the perfect example. So, first of all, have you ever heard of the superhero cyborg camp? I have not, but it sounds pretty awesome just with those words. <laughs> yeah, so it's this week-long design education event that's organized by a San Francisco nonprofit called Kid Mob. And they've been doing it every year since 2012, though I, I guess now it's called the Superhero Boost Body Mod Workshop. <laughs> and anyway, it still sounds awesome. The idea is for kids who are dealing with different forms of upper limb loss to come to this camp and learn a bunch of new design skills. And then they can put what they've learned to use and actually design and build a new arm with its own set of superpowers. Oh, that does sound really cool. So are you about to tell me that someone actually built a prosthetic arm out of Lego bricks? So not exactly, but people have paired Lego bricks with these servo motors to create prosthetic arms as well as legs. And it's super impressive to see them in action. But in this case, this uh, nine-year-old named Aiden Robinson made a different kind of Lego hand. So while attending the superhero camp in 2013, Aiden used old toys and spare parts from a hardware store to fashion a threaded metal rod into which he could attach different parts. So, for example, one attachment had a Wii remote built into it, and another one had a built-in fork. But the coolest one by far was this life-size version of the yellow claw-like hands you could find on a Lego minifigure. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know how practical that is exactly, but it would definitely be a fun way it's to mess with your friends. It's good for holding burritos and yeah. drinks, yeah. I guess. 
just burritos. I mean, I do like the idea of having all these different attachments that you can swap around, including the, a few that would just be for fun, like that yellow claw hand. But uh-huh. I mean, honestly, like, why not do that? Exactly. And one of the best parts is that one of the artists at the camp was so impressed with Aiden's creation that he actually helped him refine the concept and build a working version later that year. And not only that, the two of them also brainstormed these other specialty arms. Like there was one with this bow attachment. So Aiden could actually play the violin in his school orchestra. And they built one with a super soaker arm, which is just so awesome. I mean, you really won me over once you said this about the super soaker. I could have definitely used one of those this past summer. But um, all right, well, here's another example of how Lego pieces have been making people's lives easier. Back in 2015, the Natural History Museum in London took up a really unique and honestly daunting challenge that over the course of the next five years, they wanted to digitize their entire collection of more than 20 million pen specimens. Now, to do this, they would need to take pictures of every kind of insect imaginable. And of course, they wanted to be able to capture the fine details of each of these, things like leg hairs and wingtips. And so Mm -hmm. the photos would need to be taken from all different angles. Now, this is easier said than done because some of these specimens are over 300 years old and incredibly fragile. So anytime you're picking up one of these things, you're definitely running the risk of breaking off an antenna or a leg or some other truly fragile part of these. So I am curious how Lego figures into this because, I I mean, it does seem like entomologists have been handling pinned insects for centuries and photographing them. So don't they have their own, like, specialty tools that exist already? Like, why use Legos? Well, that's the thing. I mean, those kinds of devices do exist, but most of them are pretty unwieldy and, and actually really expensive, too. And That's why one of the museum's entomologists, this Danish guy named Steen DuPont, he started looking for an alternative solution. I was looking at this article in The Atlantic about this, and as they described it, DuPont wanted something, quote, cheap, portable, and customizable so that he could observe the wings of his moths easier. And since he'd been born and raised in Denmark, he naturally thought that his favorite childhood toy might be the right tool for the job, and he was <laughs> right. So he used a bunch of those black and gray building blocks and a handful of connector pieces, and in doing this, he was able to fashion you know, several of these insect manipulators that can easily position and even rotate these pen specimens. And so the devices range in size from like 30 pieces, some of them have more than 150 pieces, but even the biggest of these designs only takes about 10 minutes to build, and all of them cost less than 20 bucks, which you know is a lot less expensive than most of the scientific equipment people would have been using. Yeah. But the best part is that DuPont put all the designs and building instructions up online for free, so professional and amateur entomologists across the globe can now piece together their very own insect manipulators. I mean, the crazy thing is it's not even the first time I've heard of museum workers using Lego bricks to jerry-rig these solutions. Like, uh, there was this other museum in England that had this 3,000-year-old sarcophagus, but because the air is so damp and chilly there, the relic's face and the chest eventually caved in on itself, and the museum just stuck the whole thing in the basement for decades. So why couldn't they just repair it, though? I mean, museums restore artifacts all the time, right? Yeah, but because the sarcophagus was made from this paper mache-like material, repairing it would involve wetting the case so that it could be reshaped. But there's a strong chance the relic would have gotten even more damage in that process. But thankfully, this uh, Cambridge grad, this student named uh, David Knowles, came up with this pretty clever workaround. He built these six adjustable Lego platforms, or mummy jacks as he called them. Hmm. And they basically propped up the collapsing parts of the sarcophagus 
And this eliminated that concern, you know, over these further cave-ins and it allowed the team to get in there. They moistened and reshaped the mummy back into its original shape. And it was really simple and low-tech and perfect for what was this really complex problem. Huh. I mean, I feel like that kind of sums up Lego toys pretty perfectly, don't you think? I mean, uh-huh. you've got this toy that's deceptively simple on the surface, just a bunch of plastic blocks that snap together and... They're not super detailed. There's no elaborate backstory or eye-catching gimmick to this. And yet with just a handful of these bricks, you can create literally anything you can think of. Yeah, and you're absolutely right that a handful of bricks is really all it takes. In fact, there's this uh, mathematician named Soren Eilers, and he helped the Lego group determine exactly how many possible structures you could make from just six standard Lego bricks. Wow, and, and what kind of piece was he using for this? Uh, He was using a four by two brick, which, you know, is rectangular. And after writing this computer program that modeled every possible combination of six of these bricks, Eilers ended up with a truly massive number because it turns out that with just six of these bricks, you can make over 900 million different combinations. Oh, wow. I mean, maybe that's not an endless array of possibilities, but that's pretty close. 900 million. That is. That's a big number. And I I, I would have to imagine, though, like as you continued adding bricks, that number of combinations would just spiral out of control pretty quickly. Yeah, Eiler said that if he wanted his program to calculate nine or ten bricks, like it would probably take years and maybe even hundreds of years. Sometimes math just doesn't make any sense. I know. You ever notice that? <laughs> it's just weird. Well, let's leave that challenge for the next generation of Lego maniacs to take up. And I'm, I'm sure there won't be any shortage of them in the future. But in the meantime, what do you say we piece together a few of the stray facts we couldn't fit into today's episode and maybe see what kind of fact off we can build with them? Sounds good to me. All right, well, you may have seen this story, but sometime last year in Fort Worth, Texas, there was an off-duty police officer that was visiting a children's hospital there, and he would go there pretty regularly. He would dress up as certain superheroes. On this day, he was dressed as Batman and obviously there to try to put smiles on the kids' faces. And it's just pretty neat that he does this. But after one of his visits, he was in a local Walmart and he noticed the man shoplifting. Now, it turns out one of the movies this guy was shoplifting was Lego Batman. (laughs) He was a big fan of both Batman and Lego. And so he was probably a little thrown off when... You know, this surreal experience happened of Batman coming up and threatening to arrest him. And he apologized, of course, but then asked to take a selfie with Batman. That is bold. That is really (laughs) bold, yeah. So I I think we might have shared this at some point, but I I still think it's funny that the world's largest tire manufacturer is not Michelin or Goodyear or Firestone, but Lego, who produces nearly 400 million units. Uh, It's pretty unbelievable. I don't think any of those other uh, competitors, I guess you could say... (laughs) (laughs) going to catch them anytime soon. Well, my son William and I spent lots of time checking out the photos on NASA's Juno probe that they would send back from its trips around Jupiter. But one of the facts I thought was fun was that there were a few Lego minifigures along for the ride. And that's because they were thinking back to its history of the exploration and, and kind of observation of Jupiter and looking back to the time when Galileo was the first to observe and report on Jupiter's four largest moons. This was way back in 1610. So the team who planned the mission felt it was appropriate to allow Galileo to finally make the trip to Jupiter, as a Lego figure at least. And (laughs) he was made of aluminum, you know, to protect him from the radiation from Jupiter. And he was joined by two other figures, the mini Juno, Queen of the Gods, and the god Jupiter. 
I like that they sent this crew up there, like Galileo and yeah. who was killed of heresy. <laughs> right. Killed for heresy right. And, and then sense. two other gods. So, yep. <laughs> so you remember from the Lego movie that there was lots of talk about master builders and wild style, of course, was the coolest. But uh, there are actually master builders who work at Lego. The company employs about 50 of them and they call them master model builders. And they actually get paid to build with Legos. So if you've ever been to a Legoland location, these are the people who build all the incredible mini worlds and sculptures that you see all over the park. And I was reading an interview with one of the master builders, and he explained that to get the job, obviously, you've got to share your incredible portfolio of all the things you've already built. But uh, they also have this test while you're there, and applicants get an hour to build something that represents themselves. Wow, that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Well, given that Lego bricks are made of plastic and that there are literally billions of them in existence, I know many of us have wondered whether the company would eventually find a way to produce more sustainable pieces. And it turns out the company does have a goal to make all of its bricks from sustainable materials. This is not until 2030 that they hope to realize this goal in full. And so they've invested in a sustainability center at their headquarters in Denmark and have hired dozens of employees to focus on this. And we're talking about chemical engineers and product designers, and they're tasked with trying to figure out how to make these incredibly durable pieces out of more sustainable materials. So it definitely won't be an easy task, but it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. So I, I like reading the answers that the company actually provides to fans who submit questions about the future plans for the company. And one of them that comes up fairly regularly is, are there any plans to sell real-life brick-sized Lego pieces because I want to build an actual house? Hmm. And the company replied, we have no plans at this time to sell real-life brick-sized Lego pieces. You'll just have to build your home from normal materials at the time <laughs> being. But actually, in 2009, a man in Great Britain actually did build the world's first full-size Lego house. It took him 3.3 million bricks oh, and wow. it had a working toilet and a bed and it was all made of Lego. And <laughs> there was talk for a while of Legoland actually helping to move the house to their nearest theme park, but it proved too expensive. And so it's kind of sad, you know, it, it ended the way most Lego creations ended with uh, the whole thing getting demolished. Oh man, 3.3 million bricks worth of work all demolished. That is Pretty sad. All right, well, did you know that Lego used to celebrate employees who'd worked for 25 years with the company by giving them a gold Lego brick? It was just a solid two-by-four gold Lego piece that was worth about $15,000 at the time, actually. Oh, that's really sweet. I like that. But uh, if you look over there, it looks like uh, Tristan just put the final block on his Taj Mahal, and he's got, what is it, like half the office standing around and patting him on the back? It's pretty impressive. <laughs> I'm actually a little bit worried he might have forgotten to hit record because he's been so distracted. But by the off chance that he did manage to record this episode, I feel like Tristan deserves the trophy today. Yeah, I'm good with that. And listeners, we'd love to hear your stories about Lego, the most incredible things you've built or seen built or any other facts you want to share with us. You can send those to parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com or always you can hit us up at Facebook or Twitter. But uh, from Will, Gabe, Tristan, me and the rest of the gang at Part-Time Genius, thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. 
Kristen McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. <laughs> Gary Rowland does the exact producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who? This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists, like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.